Well, tonight, I just want to consider a simple question. And that is, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? In Mark chapter 8, long before Jesus is arrested and long before Jesus goes to the cross, he tells his disciples that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and scribes, and be killed and rise after three days. He says it was necessary. He must suffer and be arrested and be killed. Why is that necessary? Jesus is claiming here that he is not just a victim of oppression, even though certainly he is that. But he's not just a victim, he's a volunteer. He chose knowingly to come to earth and to go to a cross because he knew that it was necessary for something. What is it necessary for? Why did Jesus come and die on a cross? I want to share eight reasons with you. These are not by any means the only eight reasons. These are just eight. Here's the first one. Jesus died to bring us back to God. Jesus died to bring us back to God. In the beginning, God created a good world, and he created mankind to live in a deep fellowship with him and with one another. With God in the beginning, there was everything that humans really ultimately want. There was joy, there was love, there was peace. And all of that was there because humans were with God. But in our foolishness, we rebelled against God. We dishonored him and we broke our fellowship with him. And because we've broken our fellowship with him, we can still experience samples of the joy and love and peace that we were created for, but we're never fully satisfied. Instead, we experience lots of dysfunction in this world. And that's because something about our relationship with God, our fellowship with God has been broken. Jesus came to earth to bring us back to God. And the way that he does that is by going to a cross and dying. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring you to God. Jesus came to bring us back to God. Here's the second reason. Jesus died to show God's love. Jesus died to show God's love. Listen to Romans chapter five. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For very rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might, might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you realize what this verse is saying? This verse is saying that we have a God who pursues us. When we have rebelled against him, when we have dishonored him, when we have treated him like he's not important, when we've said, you're actually stupid and I know better, when we've said, 
stay out of my life. God still pursues us. Jesus went to a cross to demonstrate that God still loves sinners. Even when we're God's enemies, even when we give God the middle finger, God comes to us. He demonstrates his love for us. And he does that most clearly when Jesus goes to the cross. And this verse says that God is demonstrating his love. God the Father is demonstrating, I love sinners. It's not that just Jesus loves us and God's mad at us. God the Father loves sinners. Jesus, God the Son, loves sinners. And the Spirit of God loves sinners. And all of them are active. All three persons of the Trinity are active as Jesus dies on the cross. This means that not only do you have a God who pursues you, but you also have a God who understands you. You have a God who, when he looks and sees the suffering that you're in, he is not aloof. He's not unaware of your pain. Instead, he gets you. He's not a God who's off in an ivory tower somewhere. Instead, he's got boots on the ground. And this means that whenever you face whatever kind of suffering you might be facing right now, and you ask the question, why? God, why? you may not get a good answer in response. But at the cross, you know what the answer can't be. And that is, it can't be that God doesn't love you. He demonstrates his love because Jesus went to a cross. Here's the third reason. The third and fourth reason are closely connected. Jesus died to satisfy God's honor. Jesus died to satisfy God's honor. God made humans to be in a deep fellowship with him. We have disrespected him by saying, we don't need you. Life would actually be better without you, even though you're the one who gave us life. We would actually experience more love, joy, peace, prosperity without you. You are actually ruining things. That's what we do every single time we sin. Imagine how arrogant and audacious that is for little insignificant creatures like us who are here for maybe a hundred years to look at the eternal God and say, we know better than you. We have completely dishonored him. And God, because he is good and holy and just, He's angered by that. And he should be. That's what good authorities do, is when what's good and right and pure is being defaced and rejected, good authorities say, that's not right. Something needs to be done about that. And God is a good authority. 
And so God in his justice must defend the honor of what's good. And that's him. And yet God is also gracious and merciful and loving. And it's not that he has to sometimes choose between being just or being gracious. It's that he's always fully gracious and always fully just. And so how can God's honor be satisfied if he's going to give grace to sinners? How can he stand up for what's good and what's right? How can he stand up for what's been defaced and still have grace for sinners? The answer is at the cross. At the cross, Jesus is demonstrating an act of grace that simultaneously honors God's name. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says this, He himself, it's Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Now this little phrase, atoning sacrifice for our sins, it's a little word that means to appease something. And it actually comes from an Old Testament story. The story goes like this. There were these two brothers. One's name was Esau, the other's name was Jacob. Jacob was a little brat and a punk, and so he cheated his brother and stole something that was really valuable. And then his brother found out about it and said, you know what? I'm going to kill you for that. And his brother was a lot bigger than him, and so Jacob ran away (laughs) for years. And while he was running away, his older brother said, if you ever come back, I'm going to kill you. It's kind of like the end of Lion King. You're in the middle of Lion King, you know? Simba's running, if you ever come back, we'll kill you, we'll kill you, we'll kill you. And so he runs away. Many years later, he has to pass through the area where he knows his brother lives, and so he's terrified because the last time he saw him, he said, I'm going to kill you if I ever see you again, and he had stolen all this valuable stuff from him. And so he's terrified. He's got this huge family now. He's got all of this property that he's accumulated, all of this wealth, and he's afraid to go you know, riding by his brother because who knows what's happened to his brother after he cheated him, and now I've got all this stuff, so what am I going to do? And so here's what his brother decides to do. Jacob decides to send this big caravan ahead of him with all of these gifts that he's going to give to his brother. And he's thinking, we'll put all of these gifts and all of these great things and I'll give him all of this stuff and I'll be in the back of the line. And by the time that I get to him, maybe he won't be mad anymore. And here's what he says in Genesis chapter 32, verse 20. He's talking to the person who's going to be in the front of the line. And he says, you are also to say, look, your servant Jacob is right behind us. For he thought, I want to, and here's our word, I want to appease Esau with the gift that is going ahead of me. After that, I can face him and perhaps he will forgive me. This little word appease here is the same word from 1 John chapter 2. Jesus is the gift 
that has gone before us into the Father's presence. And not just the Father's presence, but Jesus himself's presence and the Holy Spirit's presence. How can God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit look at sinners and not just be angry at the way that they have defaced his honor and glory? The way that they have just defaced his justice and goodness and purity. How can God look at sinners and have grace and not anger? The answer is the cross. Jesus is the gift that God has put forward. Jesus on the cross is the gift that God has put forward for himself so that his honor can be satisfied. The fourth one is related to this. Jesus died to bear our sins. Jesus died to bear our sins. The essence of sin is we take God's place. We put our desires ahead of God's. We pursue our own agenda rather than God's. We trust ourselves rather than God. We depend on ourselves rather than God. We believe what we think rather than what God thinks. The essence of sin is we take God's place. This is the most arrogant, disrespectful, despicable thing that we can do, and we do it all the time. Jesus has come to bear our sin. That means to carry our sins, to take the full weight of our sins. The essence of sin is we take God's place. The essence of salvation is God takes ours. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. When Jesus went to the cross, he was taking the penalty that we deserve to pay for our sins. Isaiah 53 says, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Jesus takes our place. He pays our penalty. He takes our punishment and he pays our debt. Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 10, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, as a payment that will set you free. John Stott, who was a theologian in Britain, says, as we face the cross, we can say to ourselves both, I did it. My sins sent him there. And he did it. His love sent him there. Number five, Jesus died to make us righteous. Jesus died to make us righteous. Second Corinthians 
chapter five says, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. This means that we can stand before God and rather than be clothed with all kinds of gross sin, we can stand and be fully clothed in splendor. Listen to Ephesians chapter five. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Here's why. To make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. We can stand before God as if we are sinless because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ when we stand before God. And we are now free from the power of sin so that we can actually walk in righteousness and holiness. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, you do not have to sin anymore. Sin is not your master anymore. Now you still are in a, you know, a body that's corrupted by sin. But you do not owe sin anything anymore. It has no power over you if you belong to Jesus. Number six, Jesus died to give us an example to follow. He gives us an example of how to suffer. First Peter chapter two says, for you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Listen to this. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. If you are suffering for doing what's right, Jesus has given, given you an example of how to do that. You don't return insult for insult. Instead, you simply entrust yourself to God and trust that someday he will have the final word. This also should inform not only how we suffer, but also how we love. Listen to Philippians chapter two, verse five. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to explain how Jesus gave up the rights and privileges that he had in order to serve. That's the attitude that we're called to have. Number seven, Jesus died to defeat the powers of darkness. Jesus died to defeat the powers of darkness. Listen to Colossians chapter two, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities 
and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. This verse is talking about how on the cross, Jesus overcame Satan and the demonic, evil, spiritual world. Satan's primary power and strategy is to lie and to accuse. The cross destroyed the power of his lies and accusations. One of Satan's favorite lies is to say that your life would actually be better if you did things your own way. Don't listen to God. He doesn't really have your best interest in mind. Do what's best for yourself. Listen to your inner voice. Let it guide you. If you were to obey God, it would not work out better for you. And at the cross, that lie loses its power. At the cross, we see Jesus choosing to take the cup that God had for him, even after he had prayed, God, God if, Father, if there's another way, let this cup pass from me. And yet he endures, he takes the cup, he goes to the cross. And what happens to him? Does he experience life on the other side of that? Is there joy and peace and love to be had on the other side of that? Absolutely. So that lie loses its power. The other thing that Satan does is accuse. He baits you to the edge. He says, this is actually going to be better for you than the moment that you've sinned. He makes you feel like the worst person in the world. What a sick, sick person you are. How in the world could anyone love you? And at the cross, that accusation loses all of its power. At the cross, who could possibly love a sick sinner like you? Only the infinite, holy, all-powerful God. And then number eight, Jesus died to bring us back to one another. We were created to have fellowship with God and with one another. And because of our rebellion, we've broken that. But Jesus died to bring us back together. Ephesians chapter two, verse 16 says, he did this so that he might reconcile both talking about Jews and Gentiles, people who on earth have nothing in common and seem like they should be enemies. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. At the cross, we find the reason to accept people, to love people, to forgive people. Ephesians chapter four says, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. I don't know what you're carrying tonight. I don't know the pain or the guilt that you may have walked in here with. 
But I hope that as you fix your eyes on Jesus on the cross, that you will be filled with hope and that faith would arise in you. Right now, we're gonna move into a time of communion. And before we do so, would you take just a moment to examine your life? Would you maybe close your eyes where you are? And would you just examine, are there any thoughts that you've had recently that have been dishonoring to the Lord? Are there any ambitions that you've had? Are there any words that you've spoken? Are there any actions that you've done that are dishonoring to the Lord? Would you confess those? Not just to yourself, but to God. Would you ask for his forgiveness? Not based on anything that you've done, but based only on what Christ has done for you on the cross. Communion is going to work a little bit differently tonight. Up here in the front and also in the balcony, there's um, a table that has the bread and the cup. The bread is a picture of Jesus's body, the body that went to the cross. The cup is a picture of Jesus's blood, blood that was shed for sinners like me and like you. When we eat this bread and drink the cup, we are making a, a symbolic gesture that we believe that it's only because of Jesus and his death and resurrection that we can have life. Just as food gives life to the body, so Jesus gives life to all mankind. So what we're gonna do is, as you feel led, we're gonna come forward and receive communion and then you're free to go whenever you feel comfortable leaving.